Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Dr. William Forston, and we will be talking about EMPs and the One Second After series, and most notably his his newest book, Five Years After. Military historian William Forston considers himself an optimist by nature, even though he has written extensively about the catastrophic impact of an EMP strike and has spent nearly two decades urging national and local governments to heed his warnings. Widely considered one of the foremost experts on EMP attacks, Dr. Forstin is the New York Times best-selling author of the One Second After series, a fictional exploration rooted in the cold, solid facts of how an EMP strike above the U.S. soil would impact society. Now, there are four books in the series which should give people hope that survival is possible with the right measures and mindset in place. Julian Forstian um, has a Ph.D. from Purdue University with a specialization in military history and the history of technology. He is a faculty fellow and professor of history at Montreal College. He is author of 50-plus books, including the New York Times best-selling series, The One Second After, also the Lost Regiment series, and the award-winning young adult novel, We Look Like Men of War. He has also authored numerous short stories and articles about military history and military technology. For more information, you can visit the website www.onesecondafter.com. And that's O-N-E, secondafter.com. With that, I'd like to welcome Bill to the show. Good day, Bill. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, I, I must admit, and I, I knew very well after reading about your uh, the information you have on EMPs, I thought I knew what they were, but um, I'm kind of sadly deficient in that. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about it, and also your your series and as well as the new book. So first, let's start with you, your, your background. Can you tell us a, a little bit about yourself? I mentioned you're a military historian, but can you... Tell us just a little bit about um, Bill's journey. Gosh. <laughs> First one in David Copperfield. I was born. <laughs> and here I am today writing about this. Uh, I've been a professor at Montreal College for 30 years. I start my 31st year next week. Uh, that's 20 years ago. I became quite interested in the whole issue of EMP. And uh, my book in 2009, uh, one second after, became like a runaway bestseller. 
So I've been really pushing this issue ever since. Uh, it's, it's a major existential threat to this country, and we're really not responding to it. So that's the long and the short of it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll spend 10 minutes talking about my dogs. So <laughs> let's get started. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, okay, let's just then jump right into it. You said that it was about 20 years ago that, that you kind of delved into the EMP um, subject. So can you, first of all, explain to the listeners, you know, what an EMP what is, is? Sure. Uh, EMP, shorthand for Electromagnetic Pulse Weapon, it's created by detonating a nuclear warhead about 200 miles above the Earth's atmosphere. It sets up a catastrophic uh, pulse, almost, uh, electro called electrostatic discharge, known as the Compton effect. Cascades down to the Earth's surface at the speed of light, feeds into the millions of miles of wiring, uh, because wires can also be antennas, and basically, it just shorts our system out. Worst case scenario would be three such weapons over the eastern, central, west of the United States delivered by a missile. They blow. Our grid goes down. It does not come back online for months, more likely years. Here's the scary statistic. Estimates are that 80 to 90 percent of America would perish within the first year because of the complete shutdown of electricity. Wow. That's, that's yeah. frightening. Now, with with the, you know, the idea, obviously, EMPs can't recognize borders. So wouldn't, um, would the the pulse also, you know, kind of spill over, let's say, into Canada or Mexico or, or maybe even elsewhere? Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. You know, for example, one weapon over Europe, uh, Central Europe, could reach as far as Moscow in one direction and, uh, you know, England in the other direction. It's a line-of-sight event, and from 200 miles up, um, you can look out across four to 500 miles to the Earth's surface. It's a million square miles, actually. So, yeah, it could affect Canada and Mexico as well. Okay, boy. Um, so... What would um, kind of lead a government, you know, to utilize such a weapon when it may, you know, ultimately impact them? I mean, what, is there anything preventing them from from doing that? Good question. Uh, you know, some people immediately point to Russia or China doing this, but there's something called mutual assured destruction which has been a whole issue with nuclear weapons since the 40s and 50s. You do us, we do you. Nobody wins. But my big concern are third world players, such as North Korea, which is run by a psychotic. Iran, they're kind of psychotic as well. Or even a terrorist third world state that obtains a couple of weapons and the ability to deliver it. Right now, North Korea could do it. They have ICDM uh, capabilities, and they they could definitely take care of us in one short military term for that is asymmetrical first strike. It's an out-of-the-blue, different method of warfare. And then we, we are shafted. We will suffer horrible losses as a result. 
Yeah. Yeah, I did notice in the beginning of, of uh, five years after um, that it, up until that point, it hadn't been um, determined who, who was at fault for, for it. Uh, and you mentioned North Korea and Iran um, in the book as some um, possibilities. And that the, um, I guess it was the Republic of the United States, is that, do I have that correct? Is what would the subsequent um, country be that, that um, they would be working with others like China? I mean, right now we're, you know, kind of adversarial in some, you know, aspects uh, with China. So um, would something like this, do you feel, would something like this kind of just change the whole geopolitical alignment. Absolutely, yes, because it would be as if suddenly there was a power vacuum. America is knocked off the stage as the primary superpower facing China, and chaos will result. Uh, Remember, World War II started with Germany just invading Poland. But before it was done, it was a global event involving dozens of nations. It just keeps cascading into a larger and larger situation, which is typical of warfare. It could start off with very limited results. For example, Ukraine and Russia. There's a potential mm-hmm. there of spreading further if somebody miscalculates or tries something. So in any war, there's always a threat that it's just going to rapidly metastasize like a cancer. Yeah, wow. Um, and, and as we see, you know, Russia constantly threatening use of nuclear uh, weaponry. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, and, and the fact now that most, a lot of their um, western border um, is now NATO aligned, that it could easily, a mistake could easily send things spiraling out of control. Well, you know, uh, that's the famous quote from Jack Kennedy back in right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He said it's not war by calculation he fears as much as war by miscalculation or madness. And during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a couple of moments where we almost did go nuke. If you look at the history of that, it was a very near-run thing. You know, the brinkmanship. There could be a day when the brinkmanship goes over the line, and then it's like a string of firecrackers going off. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it, it does, you know, I, I think it's concerning when, when we're seeing this kind of thing. Now, in the introduction, I indicated that you consider yourself an optimist by nature. So uh, how does an optimist delve into such catastrophe? <laughs> <laughs> I stick my head in the sand. <laughs> no, no. Like politics. Uh, okay, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. My dad was head of civil defense for this community I was in growing up just outside New York City. And I remember talking to my dad then, what, what, what's going to happen? And he basically said to me at the age of 12, Son, if it happens, we'll be with God within about two or three minutes because we're in the blast zone. Well, that was over 60 mm-hmm. years ago. We're still here. I have a wonderful 30-year-old daughter, a beautiful girlfriend, you know, my dogs. I'm still alive as are the rest of us. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have to worry a lot, but the most important thing is 
we got to live our each day to the fullest, you know? Yeah. You never know when it might be your last day, but in between that, in spite of the threats, we go on living. And that is crucial to me, that we keep looking to the future and hope, hope that it doesn't go all the way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do things for preparation, and we'll talk about that shortly. Um, yes. Now, uh, now, with the um, – there was a, a comment I read about your first book, and it said the component of your first book that it was so important is the realization that the only way we're going to get through this as a community by working together as a community, helping those who need help. Um, our country is so fractured, you know, um, right now. And, it, you know, the idea of a community banding together um, seems like it would be a, a tall hey. challenge. Uh, so what, you know, tell us Hold it just a second. The dogs are barking. Sure. Okay. You were asking that? <laughs> That's okay. They like, they oh. like to contribute as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> There's no problem. I'm going to crash my interview. <laughs> exactly. That's uh, um, so, community. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the idea of community coming together, you know, and in, in also the different variety of communities, rural, urban, suburban. So can you tell us a little bit about how you would see um, the communities coming together in those different, you know, types of environments? How, how would they That's differ? That's a great question. and It might be a little bit complex. Okay, first of all, uh, you know, Sociological studies, and I never liked sociologists this much, but you get a community of about less than 5,000 people, there can be a tendency for it to come together. Major urban areas, I don't hold much hope. Can you imagine, look at the situation now in some of our major cities. If the power went off, you know, the bad guys are going to start running amok immediately. And, and let me point something out there. During an EMP strike, the very first thing you lose is your water. No more pumping capability. Uh, for example, where are you located right now? Well, right now I'm in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Where do you think its water comes from? Um, my tap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, we open that tap and miraculously water pours out. But there's a very mm -hmm. complex system dependent upon electricity right. to get the water there. Cut the electricity, we lose all our water. And it's like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're going to lose our water. Mm. Uh, the average town only has about 20 days' worth of food on hand, uh, from what's in your fridge and melting to what's in the supermarket. Um, you lose command and control, obviously. Uh, disease will set in. All of these factors together result in chaos initially. I've always been optimistic in terms of I think at least small communities will survive. Now, the horrifying number mm -hmm. is 80 to 90 percent of our people are going to die. The question then becomes what kind of communities will at least try to band together to make things at least livable? Uh, I actually wrote the book here in Black Mountain. I live in Black Mountain, North Carolina, beautiful little town just outside of Asheville. 
And I took my hometown and my college and made them major characters in the book. I think they would actually band together to try and survive because without that, we're all going to die. If you can't form a group that can cooperate, you know, medication, food raising, security, things like that, it becomes every man for himself, and it ain't going to last very long. Yeah, and you know, and, and I've actually been up to Black Mountain and um, oh, okay. reading your book, reading your book about uh, I-40 and Route 9. I'm very familiar with those. So it was kind of like you know reading about my backyard in a way, you know, having having knowledge of that. And in though the area there in North Carolina, um, I believe tends to have um, you know that stronger sense of community. Also. Um, yes. uh, to a degree of um, uh, survivalist, or, or you know, being um, being able to um, be self-sufficient in a way. Yes. Uh, you know, the, some of the people who scare me are the survivalist nuts. You know, mm-hmm. they almost sound like a Peter Lorre type. Thing. I'm going to stay up on top of my mountain and I'll shoot anybody that comes near me. <laughs> uh, the, those people are nuts. All right. We see enough TV programs about them. But in general, every single person in this country should have it a month's worth of emergency supplies on hand. So at least get through the initial shock. And we're just talking about having water, some bottled water. You can even bottle the water yourself. Uh, canned soup, dry foods, things like that. Uh, getting us through that first month and also very important medication. You know, one of the, in my, my first book, or should I say it is a character, is the local nursing home. What happens there <laughs> within 24 hours without electricity? Places like that will become horror shows. Do we help them or do we let them die? These are tough questions. Yeah, they are. As a matter of fact, you know, we kind of see that on a more of a micro level when we have natural disasters, you know, where we, you know, see, um, you know, the uh, you know, electricity down, water, you know, also trying to deal with, um, you know, those those people who are challenged, you know, like like you said, yeah. the, um, the assisted living kinds of things. Um, but also, I think, you know, during those times, we also see that coming together of community. So I can see where, you know, we can see that just happening, you know, should or when an, an EMP strike happens. Yeah, the, you know, I, I try to point out to people, you know, like when I'm still talking on a Christian radio station, I'll point out your churches are the best place possible to organize together. You know, you have a minister there who's aware of the situation, pull together a group, and this is important, plan long Mm. before an event happens, that everybody knows the role they're going to take. You know, my community here, I got my college, but also you got to know a doctor. You should know the police officers so they know who you are, Uh, emergency EMTs, things like that, people who are maybe already raising food. These are the type of people you should be pulling in together. It doesn't hurt just to sit down with some friends and have a serious conversation. I've had this dozens of times. Sit down with a dozen people and say, what do we do? 
what do we do as a group if something happens? Talking about it before is worth a hundred times more than talking about it after. Yeah, yeah. It, at least it becomes top of mind, you know, and that, yes. you know, should that kind of thing happen, or again, just even a natural disaster, you can quickly refer back to that conversation and, you know, maybe, now, Contacting people in an EMP strike would be difficult, I would think, because normally you yes. use the telephone or or some other kind of uh, electronic communication um, to do that. So I would think that that would, you know, just create an additional challenge in, in trying to coordinate. You know, when I first started working on the for about a year or two, trying to write a book with a Clancy type. You know, bad guys have three weapons and all that. Well, it, it was a loss. It, it was a dead end. It was at a graduation ceremony in 2005. And, you know, we, we it's a small college, so you know all the kids who are graduating. And suddenly it hit me there. It was a God moment of, I'm going to write about us. You know, just our town. Well, one of my first interviews, I went out and interviewed a lot of people. I interviewed the chief of police, who's a good friend. And so I presented the scenario. Okay, it goes down. What do you do first, Jack? And he actually picked up the phone. And then he said, oh, blank. The phones don't work, right? Your radios might not work. Your cars definitely don't work. Think about it, Jack. And he he was really upset when he started thinking about it. Talk to my local pharmacist. Oh, an important person, talk to your local vet. If you have a vet, and I do with my dog, he knows where I stand. I know where he stands because the vet actually has more medication on hand than any doctor in that town because he can knock out a horse. He can also help with surgery, mm. things like that. So things you don't think about aren't thinking about them. You know, roundtable discussion with people, issues will get raised and you go, my God, I didn't think of that. You know, like the 15 years, I did an interview last week. And a couple of issues came up. I said, you know, I never really thought about that before. And here I've written four books on it. So having conversations before rather than after is very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. Now, regarding an EMP strike, um, yes, I noticed in, in the book five we were talking about cars, you know, and that, you know, certain cars weren't affected, but others were. Can you tell us how that, how EMP strike would affect transport, cars or transportation? Ah, yeah. Uh, there's a full spectrum here on how many cars would be. It figures as low as 10% up to 90%. Basically, any car made after about 1980 has an increasing number of computerized parts in it that could be shorted out. Mm. But let's go with a low number, 10%. Let's say it's 5 in the afternoon, we're all driving home, 10% of the cars shut off. Even with 1% of the cars shutting off, you're going to go into gridlock. 10%? So even if 90% of your cars still work, how are you going to get out of the gridlock? Where are you going to get gas mm. when the gas stations themselves don't pump gas anymore? Within a couple of weeks, the vast majority of cars will be sitting on blocks because they've run out of fuel. So, yet again, another thing we really didn't think about. If we lose 90% of our cars, what? 
nothing's left. In my book, I have a character who has some old Volkswagens, you know, from the early 60s. They at least will still run. God save us, though. I remember I had a Volkswagen, two or three Volkswagens as a young man, and they were real rattle traps. <laughs> but they ran. Yeah. yeah. Those, those are, I love the old uh, Volkswagens. Um, now, planes. Obviously, planes use a lot of circuitry, so would it be planes just falling from the sky? Yes. Uh, at any given moment, if the, if the grid is working that day, because we see more and more how uh, bad weather, foul-ups with the FAA, et cetera, are grounding thousands of planes a day. Just yesterday, with those storms that hit you and me, about 2,000 flights were canceled. Now, imagine at a given moment, two to 3,000 planes are in the air. A fair percentage of them will turn into flying bricks. Even if you have a Foley mm -hmm. up front, you know, piloting, he's lost his electronics. He's lost the ability because the airlines, the rudder, uh, and all of that no longer works because they're computer activated. They become flying bricks. And within a matter of minutes, a couple hundred thousand people are going to be in a very nightmare situation of trying to get back to the ground with limited or no capability on the plane. It would be a disaster, in and of itself, a major disaster. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, we're about halfway through the show, Bill. I want to take just a quick We are break. already. And then when <laughs> – I know. <laughs> it's flowing real, it goes real nice here. Yeah. So I'm going to take that quick break, and then when we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, our government. And, you know, you're about to kind of raise awareness about the issue, okay? Okay. I'm here. Okay. Everyone, everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5 by 7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Dr. William Forsten, and we are talking about his work, um, his newest book, also five years after. Um, you can find out more about the One Second After series by visiting www.onesecondafter.com. 
Okay, with that, we're back, Bill. And I, I got to ask about the title for your show, Bringing Inspiration to Earth. Tell me about that. Well, um, it's a very interesting story. Um, back in the 90s, um, I had a, a friend who was an intuitive astrologer um, who mm -hmm. said that they wanted to do a reading for me. And I said, sure, go ahead, why not, you know, and she put it on cassette tape, uh, so that kind of dates, you know, kind of uh, the method yeah. of delivery. Um, and during that, I, I, I laid down just to kind of, you know, tune into listening intently and what it was she was saying. And during that, she indicated to me that my purpose or kind of what I'm here for is to bring inspiration to earth. And, I mean, it resonated so deeply. I mean, truly, I mean, I, I shuddered because at that moment it was like everything that I had done up to that point, and also since then, um, fit. That was like an umbrella um, that, you know, I could easily say this is kind of what, what I'm meant to do. And so when I decided um, about 13 years ago to start my podcast, I thought that um, that would be a good uh, a good title, and that, you know, it also allowed me to um, bring in a whole variety of programming. So I've got usually there's a self-help or spirituality. I have an, uh, econ um, a, an environmental awareness aspect and also children's programming. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, no. but it's kind of like, you know, anything that I think inspires people, you know, and, and in my closing, I just, my closing line is, you know, be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. So that was kind of like we need more. What I'm all about. My 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 dad was very much into astrology when I was young, and that's it. Bringing inspiration to Earth. So my hats off to you for doing that. That's you had a good thought. You had a realization of what you're supposed to do. That's a gift. That's a real gift. Yeah. God sent. Oh, I, I tell you, I mean, it has guided me. So, you know, like when I get, um, you know, pitches from publicists and that kind of thing, you know, one of the first questions I ask is, you know, is there a chance for this to be an inspirational conversation? You know, yeah. and if it is. Um, and, and, you know, I've I even had uh, what, probably one of my moments of recognition as far as you know, selecting shows is I had a woman who had written a book about um, her sociopathic husband put her on a spiritual path. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> I don't know about this. I mean, the idea of, you know, a someone like her sociopathic husband, um, you know, and anyway, it was one of those cases where I said, okay, let's do it. And, you know, and I did it. And it was one of probably the, the most responded to episodes that I've done, you know, and, you know, the fact that there were so many women listening and were, you know, grateful to have, like, her website, which listed, she had a whole resource section on, you know, how to guide women or where to go, you know. And so anyway, and it wasn't by any means my most listened to show, you know. I mean, it was, you know, the listeners step was, was rather low compared to others. But, you know, I thought, you know, that's not the point. <laughs> you know, the point is being able to help those women who needed um, a direction to follow. You know, I did a book 
oh, over a decade back was a World War II colonel first wave in on Omaha Beach. <clears throat> and the first time I really sat down, we agreed that I was going to do his autobiography. And I asked him, what inspires you? What, what did you do? How did you take command on that beach on that terrible morning? And he pulled out a little card with a prayer on it. It was the cadet, the cadet prayer. And, in fact, it was read at his funeral, and I was sitting there crying my eyes out because help me to do the greater good and never to accept the wrong. And he said that's what guided his life on that beach all the way up to being a four-star general. People like that, their inspiration. That's the thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, since then I've just met so many people who have – come through struggle and trials and tribulations and, and come out the other side. And in many cases, a lot of times, you know, there'll be memoirs. People will, will do memoirs and um, talk about subjects that are very personal, you know, and, and I just, I'm just amazed at their courage for putting it out there. And in some, and usually in a lot of cases, you know, it would um, alienate them from some friends and family, you know, by telling their truth. But um, but they still went ahead and did it. And, you know, they usually what they'll say is, you know, the, the response I'll get from those who are likely affected or similarly affected, you know, that, that it really made a difference for them to, to give them hope. Well, you know, just to talk about General Bennett again, General Donald Bennett, honor on tarnish. He said when he hit that beach and half his men were gone within a matter of a couple of minutes, he said he was terrified. And then he realized, he said the prayer to himself, and then his inspiration as well was, I'll most likely be dead in five minutes, but I'm going to live it well. And he stood up. Mm -hmm. He actually stood mm -hmm. up and started going down that beach. And I talked with the men who served with him. They said, I'm lying there terrified. Suddenly, General Bennett is standing over me saying, we are going to get off this beach. Now start moving now. And he inspired. He was actually nominated for the Medal of Honor. Let's get off this wow. beach and do our job. And uh, I, I, was, I was awed by this man. Or another D-Day vet who said he prayed every single step of the way from hitting the beach to Germany, and it was like, God, help me get through the next hill, the next village, the next town, take out this tank. He said, and he had five brothers, all of them came home. They all came through the war intact, you know, inspired to keep going forward. Yeah, wow. You know, I, I, I just think there is, so much. I mean, for for one's existence to be able to inspire others, me, I think, is like an ultimate, um, you know, tribute or, or ultimate kind of, um, you know, reason for for one's existence is to be able to do that. And you know, the what follows, you know, that who those who are inspired. Um, you know, they feel that ripple of, of inspiration and they can, you know, further, you know, add to it. And, and I just think that, uh, you know, every time we can highlight inspiration, um, you know, and be inspired, you know, as well as inspired, um, I think it's, uh, we're going to make our world uh, a better place.
Well, I'm urging you to keep on going, okay, because <laughs> it's more ships like yours. We're, we're in a horribly divided time right now, but we've had these moments before, from the Civil War, even during the Revolution, to forward. But when the crisis came, enough people stepped forward to try and do the right thing. That's the key thing. Dude, no matter what, no matter how terrified you are, try and do the right thing. And God gets you through it. Yeah. I, I do have a strong faith in God. And uh, mm -hmm. I know myself, several times of ultimate despair, and then suddenly it's like, okay, you've got to stand up and go forward and face the next day with your head up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's, um, that's, that's the important thing is, is, you know, doing the right thing and, you know, and also calling out you know, situations that you see that just aren't right, you know, that, that are, um, you know, detrimental to individuals and don't value life or, or respect the values of, of individuals. You know, that's, um, I, I get, uh, you know, stutter sometimes with, with some of the, the things that I see going on. And, and then I know that we've had, you know, other divisive times. But for me, it just seems in this particular life for me that this is, particularly, um, you know, divided, you know, that there's a, you know, that I don't know how we're going to get through that, but I mean, you know, obviously it would be, you know, getting to the, the truth and, and honesty and, and uh, you know, righteous kind of living that will do it. Um, we just need more good people to stand up and be counted. Yeah, absolutely. Uh you know, there's an old saying that God looks out for drunks, fools, in the United States of America. So I, I, I've fit into all three categories <laughs> at one point or another. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go through the next step. And, you know, I teach at a Christian college. I have wonderful students to work with. If I can inspire them just a little bit, then I go home every day thinking I've done my job. You know, I inspire the kids today to do something or to change. I remember once catching a student who had faked his paper, all right? I didn't catch that oh. time. He got an F. He came into my office about 15 minutes after class. He broke into tears, and he said, Doc, I don't deserve this day. You know, I copied the paper. What do I do? Mm -hmm. I looked at him, took his paper, tore it in half, and said, you still get an A for honesty. Now get out of here. Don't do it again. Put him. Wow. He said, Doc, he kind of changed my life that day. So that's the good stuff in life. That's what we have to keep looking yeah. at. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and just create that ripple of positivity. So, yeah. But now, going from ripple of positivity <laughs> to the government, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the optimist with the catastrophe. Um, uh, you've been, you know, kind of sounding the alarm for, for decades. So can you tell us the kind of the evolution of, you know, from when you first kind of rang that bell to, you know, till now and, and the awareness of, you know, that possibility of an EMP strike? Well, there's another old saying, it's a Zen saying, I believe, of when a, a mentor is needed, he will always be found. I have to say up front man who really inspired me to start writing about this and who was really the guru of this whole thing 
was Dr. Peter Pry, who was raising the awareness of EMP back in the 1990s. And reading his material inspired me to go forward. I got to know him. He's a good friend. Sadly, he passed away about six months ago. When I first started mm -hmm. on this, everybody thought, you know, it's tinfoil hat stuff. But I remember going to my mm -hmm. first conference, you know, a prepper conference. And, again, crazy survivalists. I mean, the people who want to work, you know, to raise right. awareness, get supplies and such. And I was told there would be 50 people there. There were 600. The next year, wow. there were 2,000 people there. It's, wow. it's now at least on the radar screen. 10, 15 years ago, maybe one person in 100 knew what an EMP is and was concerned. A fair percentage now, a very fair percentage of people are aware of it, and I'm praying over the next year with the elections and everything else. Uh, just yesterday I did an interview where uh, this person was talking about how they got working on the community level, just in their county, to upgrade electrical systems, be better prepared. The word is spreading, and I'm praying that over the next year the word really gets taken that a candidate seriously, seriously looks at EMP and moves forward. We've had two or three efforts in the past that always get lost in some stupid committee. We need a national mm -hmm. effort of investing in the infrastructure, cured from EMP, but also from cyber attacks, physical attacks, et cetera. Again, it's the line I say, excuse me, all the time. You lose electricity, you're going to lose everything. We have to protect the grid. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. I. I mean, just in the occasional outage that I, that we have here, like when the hurricane came through a few years ago, um, I was lost. <laughs> like, you know, what what to do? Um, you know, with you know, and of course, my at that point, it was like, well, drive to a place that has electricity. You know, but yeah, with uh, yeah. <laughs> But when you have it, see, and one of the things that, you know, just in our discussion, talking about the um, the release of that pulse so high up in the atmosphere and how, how large a um, area would be affected was kind of news to me. I mean, for everything I knew about EMP, it was kind of like a, you know, a little, you know, the science fiction weapons, you know, kind of like using it against yeah. your enemy, you know, kind of thing. Um, but not large scale like that, you know, and, and that is frightening. Well, you know, uh, look at Katrina or Sandy in New York in 2012. Ultimately, that was a local event. Now, it might be an area the size of a state, but I remember my college the day after Katrina, we were loading up emergency supplies in a big truck and hauling it down to, to give to whomever. In an EMP, it's a nationwide event. We then have to rely upon ourselves for a significant amount of time before any type of help, if ever, finally starts materializing. Again, a hundred times more effective to plan for something before than the day after going, oh, God, do I need to recharge my cell phone if it even works? Where's my kid going to get his next meal? you got to think about that before. And one other thing, my daughter has one, my girlfriend and I, I have a God bag. Get out of Dodge. It's thrown in the back of my car. <laughs> okay. No, but 
in that bag is some water, some some rations, uh, some silver that could be used for exchange, that no matter where we are, at least we have some resource to fall back upon. Now, it might not be an EMP, but you might get caught like that big ice storm in Atlanta two years ago that thousands of people were stranded and running out of supplies. Again, a hundred times more effective before than after. Very much so. I can understand that. Um, I like that acronym um, <laughs> for a kind of a survival kind of preparation. Um, I mentioned earlier that Five Years After is the fourth book in the series. So um, mm. I'm assuming that, you know, it would probably be better to read them in, in succession, um, starting. So yeah. what I'd like to do is I'm, I want to kind of mention the, the four different books, and if you could tell us kind of what the over, you know, overall kind of message you know, or, or ideas that were presented in those. So the first one was One Second After. So tell us about that. Right. Okay, One Second After opens the whole story up where in the first pages of the book we are hit by an EMP, and then my main character, John Matherson, and I always have to point out, John Matherson is not a hero. He's an ordinary guy. He was in the military. He has two daughters, one of whom has diabetes quite bad. Uh, mm-hmm. It's about that first year of him becoming a community leader to pull the community together. Next one, one year after, well, obviously, it's one year after. What's happening in the town a year later? Mm-hmm. Third one is called The Final Day. The reason I called it The Final Day was I was trying to tell my publisher, I don't want to write about this anymore. It's pretty depressing. It didn't work, did it? Uh, it didn't work, and it's the Godfather, the line from The Godfather. Every time I try to get out, they pull me back in again. So I finally <laughs> agreed to do a fourth book called Five Years After, which picks the story up five years after the day. It's referred to as the day, day the electricity died. Yeah. Wow. Um, now, you know, I, I you know, you just mentioned the day, but also um, in one, there's also a reference to a period called the starving time. Can you tell us um, about that? What would, what was that? Sure. Okay. As I mentioned a bit earlier, the average community only has about 20 days worth of ready food on hand. That means what's in your fridge, even if it's melting, to what's in the market. What happens after 20 days? How do you finally get enough food to sustain the community? Uh, being a military historian, uh, I drew in part on the siege of Leningrad in World War II, where rations finally got down to 700 calories a day. A person needs 15 to 1,800 just to be barely alive, and they were actually putting mm-hmm. sawdust in Leningrad, they were putting sawdust into the bread. How do you find enough food to keep going? Well, some people think, I'll go up in the forest and I'll shoot something. Well, suppose there's 10,000 other people up there looking for food as well. It would be very chaotic. can be done, but there will be a starving time until a harvest comes in and we start getting our resources back together again. Wow. Yeah, that, you know, 
when I was reading about, you know, the, that particular time, you know, on, on how the forests were hunted already. I mean, you know, down to, down to squirrels. I mean, you can find much more than that. Um, so, um, what, you know, you've kind of had this, um, idea of an MP strike, um, EMP strike. What, what is your feeling? Do, do you feel like this is something that actually could come to be? I mean, is this a case where you think maybe science fiction becomes science fact? Yes. Um, hmm. Again, the historian in me, there's never been a weapon system in history that has not been used at some point. You know, 600 years ago, the longbow suddenly trumps all the armored knights of Europe, gunpowder, airplanes. I believe sooner or later somebody is going to do this. It could be North Korea or it could even be a regional conflict. Of a high number for me is between India and Pakistan who are always mm-hmm. at each other's edge. So, or even Russia uh, falls or goes totally nuts and pops an EMP over Ukraine. Because remember, Ukraine is far bigger than Texas. They could make it a regional mm-hmm. event. So I think sooner or later somebody is going to do it. I pray it's not against hmm. us. Yeah, I hope not. I hope not for sure. Um, so is there going to be a ten years after? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, uh, five years after it comes out in two weeks, and about six months ago, the publisher and I'm very close to my publisher. They're a great house, you know, Forge Books. I've worked for them for 20 years, and they, you know, the team called me up, well, Bill, what are you thinking about? And I'm like, I'm thinking about anything but EMP, all right? I have a joke line that my next book will be called Happy Gunny Goes to Town. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't want to write about it anymore, okay? Yeah. But I guess I will at some point. So is there, you know, I mean – any other, I mean, is there anything else in the works? I mean, other than, you know, I mean, because you did have the, um, also the Lost Regiment series, um, yeah. and then the young adult novel. Um, anything along those lines, or maybe even the beginning of a new series? Well, you know, uh, I wrote eight books on the uh, Lost Regiment, which was about a civil, it's science fiction, it was about a Civil War regiment winds up on another world, you know, through the Bermuda Triangle routine, and the bad guys there are very bad. And it's not about just a fight for survival. It's how do you replicate a 19th century technology of how do you make the machine that makes the machine that makes the gun that will keep our Army uh, provisions. I've thought about getting back to that series just for the fun of it. I had a great time writing that series in the 90s. And I still get calls from fans asking, when are you going to do another one? So mm-hmm. that might be my next book. Or I don't oh, know. Good. I yeah. be walking down, I'll be walking down the street one day, and I do have, and I do believe it can, it's an inspirational thing of a God moment. Uh, suddenly something hits me, and I go, my God, that's a book. And that's happened to me three or four times in my life, including The Lost wow. Regiment, a very painful book I wrote seven years back called uh, Day of Rats about a terrorist strike on an elementary school. So mm. uh, 
And some of it's wow. cautionary. People, we got to think about yeah. this thing beforehand. Again, before rather than after. Wow, that that's something. Well, you know, uh, we do need inspiration. <laughs> the world needs it, and you know, there are plenty of examples right now where. Um, where there's a, a kind of a negative, challenging situation that could really use an infusion of, of hope and inspiration. So I'm sure there is no shortage of, of conflict to draw from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, I don't know. Maybe later today I'll go, oh, my gosh, that's a book, or it might be six months from now. At the moment, yeah. I'm doing a lot of interviews. My college starts up next week. I'll be focusing on that again. But something will come at some point. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's great. You know, uh, when I my first book I did in, in 2012 uh, it was one of those. You know, and, and I was told in like 1990 something, 1990 something that I would write a book. You know, and that it would be published. And I was like, oh, okay, great. And and, and um, for years I tried. <laughs> I tried writing. And I used to be a corporate trainer in uh, restaurant and banking industries. And so every time I tried, it ended up being like a training manual. <laughs> like, ah, you know, this isn't going to work. And then, and there was just one day while walking. I walk every day in nature is my little thing. Uh, one day it was just mm-hmm. like, boom, all of a sudden, you know, there was, uh, there was the ending, um, of it. And, um, and then from that day on, I, w- I would walk every day and, and it would be shown or, you know, kind of inspired as to what to write next. And I would go back to the, to the office and, Pump it out. <laughs> that's how that, that book was born. That's how it works in all, a lot of times. I mean, I'm friends with some other authors, and uh, the ones who are successful are this inspiration came to me, and all I had to do was sit down and write the novel. And it, it's a labor, as you know, it's a laborious task. You're in the middle of it at 2 in the morning. You're going, why am I doing this? I should be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And now one of the things I did kind of backwards is, I mean, I the character development, I had one particular character that I, was, I you know, wrote, there were a few chapters that involved her, and, and it just wasn't clicking, wasn't clicking. And then, you know, on one of those walks, it was like, well, no, there's, I got a different name, you know, to, to call that character. And, and then with that came, like, the whole essence of the individual so i had to go back and rewrite you know uh, it fit better it fit so much better but it was like uh, why, why didn't i get that to begin with but but nonetheless it you know it worked itself out you know i tell people our writers workshops and such do 500 words a day no matter what don't go back and edit it the next day because you become a snake chasing your tail go all the way forward and a lot of times just about as you're done with the book you have a better understanding of what I need to do to start the book, and then you just go back and you do it, you know, for real. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bill, this has really been a delight. I really want to thank you for your time and and chatting with us, and and I I love the book. Um, You know, I'm going to have to go back now and and do uh, one second after and forward and uh, find out how how things happened before before five years after. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it, and and I look forward to to following you and and your journey and, and what comes next. This has been a very uh, – some interviews, it's like pulling teeth. This this is a very good interview. I've enjoyed it. I hope to talk with you again sometime. 
I've really enjoyed this. God bless you, and keep up the good work with, you know, bringing inspiration to earth. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Yes, and we will I'll keep in touch. So thank you again. Okay. God bless okay. you. Bye. Thank you. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Dr. Bill um, Forston, and we've been talking about his newest book, Five Years After, but also talking about the others, One Second After series, and also EMPs and the effect um, that it could have on our lives and how to be prepared. So, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show. And until we meet again, Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Byte Radio Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. <laughs>